Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. You do whatever you have to to stay out on that field because if you're not out there in your position, somebody else was going to be. I'm sure when Leroy said that, he didn't mean for me to throw down a handful of pain pills every day to practice through those injuries and nicks and, and different things that were going on or throw down a handful of uh, benzodiazepines at night to get to sleep through the throbbing pain. I'm sure he didn't mean that, but that's what I was willing to do. My guest today is named Randy Grimes. He was a second round NFL draft pick for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and he played center for them from 1983 to 1992. Welcome to the show, Randy. Yeah, my name is Randy Grimes, and I am a 10-year veteran of the NFL, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. My career was 1983 to 1992, and uh, recently um, released my first book called Off Center. So uh, I'm grateful about that. It was a three-year labor of love, and uh, we'll share more about that in uh, in this episode. Welcome to the show, man. So glad to have you on. And and I love the title of the book. That's so clever. It took me a second. And I was like, oh, because he was a center when he played football off center. It's like, oh, that's brilliant. I love that, man. So good. And then and then the RX worked out so good too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it it just all came together perfectly, man. It took me a second to to figure all that out. And then when it clicked, I was like, oh, that's so well, good. So, some of us are some of us are slower than others. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I'm a slow learner and a fast forgetter, man. Uh, that's why my sponsor tells me I have to keep going to meetings because I forget what I learned. <laughs> hey, you and me both. I don't. I don't even remember waking up this morning. So, well, thanks for having me on the show. This is this is awesome, man. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm so glad to have you on, and and I can't wait to hear a little bit more about your story. And I'm sure that the listeners are also going to be intrigued to hear more from you. Let's let's get let's get it on. Let's do it, man. So, so I know that you started using uh, during your career in the NFL. So, what what were the circumstances that led to that? How did you end up getting into uh, what was it prescription pills? Yeah, yeah, pain pain painkillers. You know, I can remember getting to uh, the locker room uh, there at one Buck Place. That was our the address of our facility back in '83, and I had a locker next to uh, Leroy Selman. And he was like, uh, you know, that first NFL great that I'd watched on TV. He was that first guy that I ever had that that really uh, big conversation with. And uh, 
first thing I learned from Leroy when I got there was that football was no longer a game. It was now a job. And the second thing I learned from him was you do whatever you have to to stay out on that field because if you're not out there in your position, somebody else was going to be. And, you know, I played back in an era where, you know, we, we practiced hard. We beat the heck out of each other all week long. And hopefully there was enough left in the tank to play on Sunday. You know, I call it that junction boy mentality. You know, we were having three a days. We were, we were going full speed every practice, every play, all week. You know, the, the mentality back then was if you don't practice hard, you're not going to play hard. So there was a lot of injuries that were sustained just in practice. You know, now it's so much different with the new collective bargaining agreement. Those guys hardly ever put on the pads. They don't they don't have as much contact during the week. Uh, guys are playing longer and having longer careers and they're having fewer injuries as a result of practice. But, you know, back in my day, that wasn't the case at all. So I'm sure when Leroy said that he didn't mean for me to throw down a handful of pain pills every day to practice through those injuries and nicks and 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 different things that were going on or throw down a handful of uh, benzodiazepines at night to get to sleep through the throbbing pain. I'm sure he didn't mean that, but that's what I was willing to do. I was willing to do whatever I had to to stay out there because, you know, you, you don't want to ever get a reputation of always being on the injury report or always – uh, missing practice or always back in the training room being worked on. You know, you don't want to get that reputation because that was a reputation you were never going to get away from and what was sure to be a short NFL career. So, man, I just I suffered in silence. I threw those pills down and I picked myself up, dusted myself off and got back in the huddle and didn't say a word. And, you know, I justified it so easy because I wanted to be the best center that ever played the game. I wanted that next big contract. I wanted, I wanted to uh, feed my family. You know, I wanted to be a pro bowl. I, you know, those are ways that I justified it. And, you know, I was getting it from the team doctors or the team trainers or teammates. So, you know, the, I, I looked at it like it was a necessary evil instead of what it really was, which was a full-blown addiction. Yeah. And I think that's the slippery slope that a lot of people face when it comes to prescriptions. I've heard that from so many people like, well, I started off with my doctor prescribing it to me, like a medical professional gave me this script. And then there's like that, that gray area where then the amount that they're prescribed isn't enough. And then they start having to supplement with other things or buying more pills off the street or, you know, maybe turning to heroin or fentanyl or something but I've, I've heard that from so many people just that whole dilemma of it started off with my doctor prescribing this to me when when you have that realization like when your prescription runs out halfway through the month that's when it really hits you yeah hey something's something's not right here you know i'm, I'm not taking as directed i'm abusing these and but at that point you're already you know, you've already got that monkey on your back and you're out looking for more to supplement, like you said. Right, right. And I, I totally understand that vicious cycle of more, more, more. You start to build up that tolerance. And then when you run out of that script, then, like you said, you're out there looking for more because you know what it's going to feel like to come down. I have to 
I have to continue to take this amount just to maintain that level of, of normal right? and not be sick and not feel those withdrawal symptoms. And it, it's just a terrible cycle. It's like the, the series on Hulu that came out not too long ago, dope sick, where they're talking about just the whole o- opioid epidemic and the Sackler family and, and how they just continue to push those pills and, you know, larger quantities and, and, you know, bigger pills with, with more in it, you know, and just that, that downhill journey for those of us that have been addicted to those. It, it's, it's just when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see a way out. It's hard to, to realize what's happening. But like you said, there are those glimpses where you're like, you're halfway through the month and you're out and you're really, you're realizing like something's not right here, but you know, it takes a long time, at least in my experience to get to that point of realizing what the problem is instead of thinking, Oh, they just didn't prescribe me enough or this was an extra hard week. So I had to take more, whatever the, whatever the rationalization or justification is. I'm going to, I'm going to ask my doctor to increase my, uh, my prescription, you know, and he's, uh, as soon as you bring that up, then red flags go up with him. But the fear of withdrawal, you know, that's, that's real. The anxiety that comes with that, you know, a couple of days in withdrawal, you will, uh, You'll do things that you never dreamed that you were capable of doing, you know, or you'll you'll tell lies that you never thought you would ever tell, or you would hurt people that you never thought you would hurt because of that anxiety and fear of withdrawal, you know, desperation. That's that's the wrong kind of desperation, though, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So what what did it look like on, on this journey? How long in your career were you using the prescriptions for and were there any points where your life started to get unmanageable where where you were having negative effects from using the prescription drugs and and just like chaos and the things that usually come with addiction well i never thought i would take what i was calling a necessary evil into my private life and when i did retire in 92 I already had a rage and addiction going i can remember sam why she was my last uh, head coach telling me that uh you know, they weren't, they weren't going to be bringing me back. And I'd gotten hurt the second half of that last season. So I knew my career was over. And I remember just raking everything out of my locker into a black trash bag and walking out the back door. And Randy Grimes, the football player, didn't exist anymore. And that, that in itself was throwing gasoline on an already raging dumpster fire, which was my addiction. Because when I didn't have that uniform to put on anymore or that playbook to look at, I struggled for many years and I retired back to Houston, Texas and, you know, doctor shopping when I didn't have those team trainers and doctors and access to the narcotics like I did when I was with the Bucks. when, when I didn't have that anymore, you know, that's when all the insanity started, the doctor shopping all over Houston, you know, I probably had anywhere from 12 to 15 doctors at any given time. And all I had to do was, uh, keep up with, uh, you know, when was the last time I saw him? When was the last time I went to that pharmacy? It was a full-time job, my addiction was. And, uh, of course, it wrecked my reputation. It wrecked my finances. It, it wrecked my marriage. And uh, it wrecked my kids. You know, addiction is, is ugly. But, you know, Brett, I couldn't stop the insanity. I couldn't stop what I was doing. And a lot of that was fear-based, you know. And, and I thought I was the only one out there struggling like that, you know. So there was a lot of guilt and shame, too. Here I was, 
a former pro bowler, a second round draft pick of the NFL Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And, and here I am driving all over Houston, doctor shopping, you know, to feed a habit that I cannot control. Mm, mm, yeah. And that's, I think that's what's so important about shows like this and social media platforms and Hulu specials that bring light to it is letting people know that, that they're not the only ones that are struggling, that they're not alone. Cause I can remember for me in my early, when I first was trying to find recovery, I didn't really know of people that were in recovery. I didn't know where the meetings were. I didn't know that there were other people that were struggling like I was struggling. So I think that's a huge part of just giving back. And as a lot of people say, recovering out loud so that others know that here I've been through those same struggles and here I am on the other side. If you need help, you know, send me a text, give me a call, whatever. I'll, I'd be more than willing to talk with you. And I think that's, that's a huge part of, of recovery is being available and being, being that hand up to the next person. Like we talked about a minute ago, you know, I think a lot of it's fear. You know, people don't put up their hand and ask for help because they're, they're scared or they, they don't want to go through withdrawal. They don't understand that, you know, there's medications out there to help you over the hump, you know, that you can, you can be relatively comfortable, but you have to ask for help. You know, you've got to put your hand up. And, and I tell people all the time, it's okay to not be okay, but you have to put your hand up because there's, there's help and there's hope out there. And, um, you know, the perfect storm was coming together for me in 2009. It was the summer of 2009. And my, my, uh, I'd had a series of seizures as a result of benzodiazepine withdrawal. That was going on. I, my, my daughter wouldn't let me come around my first grandbaby because I wouldn't fit to be around her, her new, new baby. Uh, my wife was re finally realized she was loving me to death and she couldn't sit by and watch me continue to kill myself anymore. And uh, we, I'd lost another house as a result of my addiction. So all these things were coming together. Uh, a good friend that I played with in Tampa, Tom McHale, passed away and he was doing the exact same thing I was doing. He was self-medicating his injuries he got while he played with the Bucks. He played right next to me at right guard. And uh, so that really, that was the perfect storm that finally made me put my, after 20 plus years, finally put my hand up and asked for help. And what did that look like? Because there, there might be some people that are listening to this episode that are in that place where they haven't quite asked for help yet. And they're in that spot you were talking about being fearful and, and not knowing what it's going to be like to withdraw or not knowing what's going to happen when they say, Hey, I need help. I have this problem. What, what, what were those early days like for you? What, what, what did you experience? Um, was it as terrible as you thought it was going to be? Oh my God. No, it was, it was so life-saving. Uh, I mean, I, I found myself again. I can remember pulling up to the treatment center. I flew from Houston to uh, Fort Lauderdale and then I was driven up to West Palm beach to a uh, treatment center. And I remember leaning against the door of this old black, dirty, beat up town car. And I was so sick and I was so sick. And uh, I remember uh, somebody opened the door from the outside and I just fell out. And I had about 30 or 40 feet to get inside the, the room there. And I crawled on all fours from that car through that door. And nobody helped me. And I'm glad they did because I needed to do that. But I, I, I say even today, you know, 12 and a half years later, that crawling through the door that night was my greatest accomplishment. 
because, I mean, even over the birth of my children, my marriage, all the football accolades that I got, crawling in that door that night was my greatest accomplishment because if I don't do that, then everything else was for nothing. And that was September 22nd, 2009. Wow. Wow. That's, that's awesome, man. And I love to hear that. And hopefully there's some people that are listening to this episode that get some encouragement from that and realize even though we have all this fear and, and that's to me, that's really like one of the things that I think fear is, is just that unknown, the fear of the unknown. We don't know what's going to happen if we, if we change. And, and I've been through that too. Like in, in the beginning, when I was trying to find recovery, there was so much fear because I, I only knew this way of life. I didn't know what was going to be on the other side. I can be comfortable in, in the routine and the habit and, and the familiar, and it's scary to go to somewhere else. But like you said, and I totally agree, like this new way of life is so much better than anything that I could have ever imagined anything, uh, anything I could have ever dreamed of. And I think, uh, in, in one piece of literature, it talks about if we made a list of, of what we thought our, our life would be like in recovery, we'd be selling ourselves short. My life today is nothing like I would have imagined, but it's just, it's incredible the gifts that we receive when we, when we put down the drugs and start working on ourselves and, and start living this new way of life. Just keeps getting better. Doesn't it keeps getting better? Absolutely. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear a little bit more about off center, how you, how you came to decide to write a book, uh, what that process was like for you. Well, and uh, I felt like I needed to document my story and and not so much so everybody could could read it but i wanted my family to have a platform in it you know i wanted them to be a part of it you know everybody added something to the book and it was a healing process for my family for the grimes family you know so it's already served its purpose whether it sells a copy or not it's already done what I hoped it would do, and that was to heal our family and, and everybody move on. It was a three-year labor of love, like I said. And, uh, you know, I poured my heart and soul into 234 pages there. And I wrote my story through the eyes of an intervention that's going on. So there's actually two stories going on that parallel each other through the book. There's a character in there for everybody that everybody can relate to. There's, you know, there's, there's that classic enabler. There's that classic codependent. There's that classic uh, person with all the stigma that surrounds an addiction. There, all these characters are part of the intervention. And, uh, I, it, man, it just turned out so good. I, di- I didn't want to just tell my story. Hey, I was born in Tyler, Texas, and then go all the way through. And then I got sober September 22nd, 2009. I wanted, I wanted everybody to get something out of that, out of the book. And so there's something in there for everybody. That's awesome. And and I love what you just touched on there about the the stigma. I think that's a huge, a huge part of, of this whole epidemic and the whole problem that we have right now is the stigma and I can see the tide changing a little bit, you know, just here in the last couple of years where people have started using destigmatizing language and more and more celebrities are coming out. Right. Yeah. More celebrities. And and that's huge. I think that's huge because I can remember in my addiction thinking like if I just had like that kind of money or that kind of status, my life would be good. And I know today that that's not true. Like my problem right. was 
my problem was here. My my problem was I had a thinking problem and I, I didn't know. I, I just thought like, oh, more money. I'll be fine. If I can, if I can just get that next promotion, if I can just get that better job, if I can just get a house, if I can just get a nicer car, you know, all my problems are going to go away. And I, I know today that that's, that's not true, but, but we have those ideas in our head of, of if I can just get to wherever life is going to be good and not, not want to do the internal work, not want to look at what's going on with us. But the, the stigma, I think that's, I think that plays a part in the fear too, of, of people being able to reach out and say, Hey, I'm struggling with addiction. I have this problem because there's so many things that society has, even me as someone in recovery, like I had, I had some of those stigmas. I used some of those to, to justify my use because in my head, an addict was somebody that was panhandling, sleeping under a bridge, using needles. And I'm looking at my life when I was using, and I'm like, well, I don't use needles. Uh, I have a place to stay most of the time. You know, occasionally I'm sleeping in my truck, but most of the time I have a room that I'm renting. Like I show up to work uh, at least a couple times a week. Like and like comparing myself to like this this idea of what an addict is that stigma and like no I'm not that person I'm 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 good I, I my life is still somewhat manageable right and even even people that come into treatment you know they look around and they you know hey I wasn't uh, I wasn't shooting heroin so I'm not like these people you know I would I'm I'm not as bad as I as I thought I was you know when when in fact. Yeah, addiction takes us all to the same place, and and it's a deep dark place. And you know, people ask me what I miss most about football, and you know, it's not the game. I don't miss the game. I miss the locker room, and that camaraderie, and that brotherhood, and being with like minded people. And that's the greatest gift that recovery has given me back. Other than my family, is that brotherhood, you know, being with like-minded people who have been to those deep, dark places that, that I've been to. So I'm, uh, that's what I'm most grateful about recovery. Absolutely. I was, I was actually talking with a, with a friend last night and we, we were talking about just that we were talking about the importance of community when it comes to recovery. And, and there was a quote and I can't remember who originally said it, but someone said the opposite of addiction is connection. And I agree with that 100% like that right. to me, that was like the missing piece because when that was part of the reason I started using in the beginning was I didn't have that community. I didn't have that sense of belonging. I felt like an outcast. I got high and being high made me feel more comfortable in those kind of situations. I felt like, you know, I could relax and, and mm-hmm. be normal. And that was what I was missing was that community. And like you said, finding that group of people that have been through similar situations that understand those dark places that we've been to, like that is such a huge part of recovery. It is. And I tell people all the time that, that that's the number one thing, you know, that you got to work on when you get out of treatment. And, you know, the other thing with, with me, it was accountability, you know, staying accountable to somebody every day. You know, I needed somebody to, to hear to hear my voice and see my eyes every day for a long time. Even today, you know, almost 13 years later, I still have to be accountable to somebody every day, whether it's family or my sponsor or my sponsees. That was the big thing, not to isolate and do all the, the crazy behaviors that I was doing before and, and be accountable. 
and and find your community and your community lies within your uh, your uh, recovery you know your meetings and and all that absolutely i mean i've made some of the deepest and best friendships that i've ever had from people that go to my home group and it's just crazy like i i can remember going in and seeing some of these people and thinking like uh, you know i don't look like these people i don't i probably don't have anything in common with these people just like those judgments that we have especially early on these these people are crazy right they're crazy they you know they believe different things and i believe they look different than me they're from different you know backgrounds and religions and and some of the people that i'm closest with are people that are nothing like me one of one of my closest friends from the program is 63 years old i mean he's he's a cool dude man we we get together after meetings and smoke cigars and talk about recovery and i never ever would have imagined that i'd be hanging out on a saturday night with with a dude in his 60s at a cigar shop talking recovery like who would have thought of that man <laughs> recovery truly is a miracle and like you said the the community piece is just it's so crucial and and the part you talked about there about accountability because i'm i'm a master of self-deception so i need to stay plugged in with people that know what it looks like that's i think that's another part about that community and, and meetings too is is we're really good at, at spotting each other's BS. You right. know, we, we know we know when something's not right, when something's off. So that's another huge part of that community wrapped in with that accountability and having those close relationships, allowing people into our lives on a deeper level. That was something I struggled with for a long time. I'm really good at, at you being right here on this surface level. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Awesome. Great seeing you. Everything's fine. Right. I'm fine. Are you fine? All right. Later. But getting to that point of like letting somebody in, letting those walls down, yeah. being vulnerable, that was so scary for me. Like I'd never done that before. And I, it was really uncomfortable the first couple of times I did it, but yeah, that saved my life, man. Just being able to let people know what's going on. Well, re recovery is what you put into it. You know, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. You know, I encourage people all the time, even as they come into treatment at White Sands Treatment Center here, where my athlete program is, you know, you, you have to engage. You know, it's such a short time that you're going to be here and you're going to get out of it what you put into it. Even when you walk off uh, out the door, you know, your, your recovery is your responsibility. It's not anybody else's and you're going to get out of it what you put into it. And if you're truly grateful that you don't live that life anymore, that you're not a prisoner to whatever it was that, that got you there. If you're truly grateful, then you're going to engage, you know, you're going to want to want to keep getting better and, 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 and have things start getting better for you all the time. And that's, uh, that's just purely gratitude, you know, gratitude, gratitude makes what we have enough, you know, and we're grateful to have that. Yes, I love that. I love that. Gratitude is such a huge part, and, and I love that message. Randy, we're getting towards the end of our time, so I'd love to give you an opportunity to share with the listeners where they can find your book. Uh, if you have any social media accounts or anything that you'd like to plug or website. Um, yeah, yeah. Hey, you can, if, you, if you can't find me on social media, you're not trying very hard because I'm everywhere. You know, Facebook, uh, Instagram, tw uh, Twitter at Sober Center 60. 
Uh, also, Instagram, Sober Center 60, LinkedIn. And then you can get the book on Amazon, and, or you can go to offcenterthebook.com, and that will give you a brief description of the book, and also it will direct you to that Amazon link. But it only released last Tuesday, the 8th, and it's just doing so good. The reviews have been awesome. I'm so proud of it. And uh, again, this is this is what it looks like. This is Off Center. And go to Amazon. And also you can find me at proathletesinrecovery.org or whitesandstreetmentcenter.com. Uh, Randy Grimes Speaks. I mean, there's tons of ways to find me. But go get the book. Read, read, read the book. We'll be friends forever. Awesome, man. Awesome. And I'll be sure to include some links in the show notes. So if you're listening, you can scroll down in your app and just tap on those different links. And I also wanted to promote on May the 5th, Randy's going to be joining us on Recovery Revolution Live. So if you guys listen to this episode before May the May the uh, 5th, and you might have questions or something for Randy, you can hop on the live stream and interact with us live, ask those questions and stuff. So that would be awesome if, if there's something that that gets sparked listening to this episode and you have a question for Randy, be sure to hop over uh, either on the Facebook page or on the YouTube channel and you can watch us live. Cool. Great show, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, thank you for coming on. I really do appreciate you taking time out of your day and, and sharing your story with us. Cool. And I'll see you on May 5th. All right. Sounds good. All right, buddy. Thanks. Randy, thank you again for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. I would encourage you guys to pick up a copy of Randy's book, Off Center. The links for that will be in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.